Our scripture lessons today, for those who will be listening later, come from Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 15, Psalm 149, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17, and Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Do you remember your prom? For some of us, it was a lot longer ago than for others. And for a few of us, prom is still yet to come. Or maybe you just were never interested in that sort of thing anyway. Either way, we all know that prom involves fancy clothes and a corsage at a minimum. Sometimes it's a rented tux or a very expensive dress that is likely never to be worn again. Some young people go out for a nice dinner first, and some even splurge for a limousine. For the ladies, there tends to be a special trip to get your hair done, perhaps your nails too, and then makeup. Once everyone is all gussied up, pictures are mandatory to commemorate the event. When it's all said and done, a lot of time and money goes into the prom experience. How might it go if someone decided to forego all that and just showed up to prom in whatever they happened to be wearing no corsage, no fancy clothes, not even a decent haircut. Anyone breaking such accepted norms would definitely stand out and might very likely be ridiculed, at least by some. A lot of life requires us to get ready or to meet certain standards of behavior before we can fit in. It can be rather exhausting. In fact, it's so ingrained that we assume that God is the same way. We think he expects us to get ready before we come to him. First century Jews certainly thought so. Jesus completely destroys that way of thinking in his famous Beatitudes, which we read in today's gospel lesson from Matthew chapter 5. The Beatitudes are the introduction to the first big lesson Jesus taught, known as the Sermon on the Mount. The one thing that stands out from this passage is that God meets us where we are. Prior to the Sermon on the Mount, the only words we have recorded of Jesus' teaching were, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which, by the way, happens to be exactly the same thing that John the Baptist taught. But Jesus was already drawing a crowd in Galilee due to his healing miracles. The crowd knew something was different. They could see the power in his healing and hear the conviction in his words. They were drawn to him. Jesus of Nazareth clearly had something no one else did. It must have given them a hope they hadn't known before. Our gospel reading today starts at chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. One could take that passage to mean Jesus went up on a mountain to get away from the crowds and teach his disciples alone, or it could be that he went up a little way up a mountain, essentially to give him a natural platform from which to speak. The traditional interpretation has always been the latter, though we should keep in mind that the disciples are in some ways the primary audience for this lesson. The act of sitting down was taking the position of a teacher in ancient Jewish society, so everyone prepared to listen. However, 
Since a seated position isn't great for projecting one's voice, it was probably a rather intimate affair with the crowd drawing very close to be able to hear Jesus. These 12 verses of the Beatitudes may be the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, but they also make up their own distinct passage. I mentioned that the crowds followed Jesus because he must have given them a new hope. Thanks to the Pharisees, faithful obedience to Yahweh had been raised to a level that was unattainable for average Jews. Ironically, it was also unattainable for the Pharisees, but they never seemed to notice. Unless one can afford to leave their daily work behind and study Torah every day, it seemed impossible to please God. Being holy had become a luxury that the average person simply couldn't attain to. How depressing. You want to please the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who brought your people out of bondage in Egypt and gave them the land that had been promised. But according to the religious leaders of the day, only a select few were good enough. Without a degree from the finest Hebrew seminaries, the way to God was shut. Today, we do get behavioral standards from our religious elite, but the problem is more complicated. There are both high and low moral standards being promoted within the church, and completely contradictory messages coming from many who claim some form of religious authority. We're all too aware of the large swaths of the church today that have abandoned orthodoxy and personal holiness. Most recently, we've seen the split in the United Methodist Church, where they ejected those who wanted to maintain the traditional orthodox standards. The remaining UMC is now freed from behavioral, from biblical standards of holiness. On the other hand, we see fundamentalist legalism in the church as well. This may be in part a reaction to the wandering of those denominations that I was just talking about. The fundamentalist side clings to personal holiness, but often at the expense of compassion and thoughtful biblical interpretation. Thirdly, we have many who claim religious authority, yet promote hate, violence, and lies in order to accumulate power and wealth. The vast majority of these people are not ordained elders, yet they foolishly claim to speak for Jesus. Or worse, they say that what Jesus taught simply doesn't work anymore. To them, the ends justify the means, and many, many Christians follow the deception. All these groups have standards that they place on their adherents. Even the theologically liberal branch of the church, which one would assume has few standards, actually places heavy burdens on their followers of not questioning their humanist thinking as if it were an absolute, all the while questioning the existence of absolutes. We live in an era where the usually unstated standard is, toe the line or we'll shame you and remove you. We have crowds today, though they are found mostly on social media instead of in the fields, who are just as hopeless and confused as in Jesus' day. What is one to do? I'm sure you've noticed that Jesus didn't play the Pharisees' games. 
He didn't place heavy yokes on people's already tired shoulders. Instead, he lifted their yokes off and threw them aside. He didn't tell his disciples, you can come to me once you're holy. He came to them as they were. Jesus accepted that we are all on a journey. He doesn't wait at the end for us, but rather walks all the way to where we are and then joins us, walking side by side through every valley and mountaintop. Jesus is like a date that shows up early on prom night and says, I don't care if you are ready. I want to be with you right now. Life's an adventure. Let's go. That's what the beatitude they're saying. Jesus is looking for the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted for their faith. Some of these traits indicate spiritual maturity, like hungering for righteousness, being merciful, pure in heart, or peacemakers. Some of these describe people in a state that happened to them beyond their control, like mourning or being persecuted. Those who are poor in spirit are those who recognize that spiritually they have little to offer. This was the opposite of the Pharisees, who believed that their good works amounted to a large credit on their spiritual account. So poverty of spirit may not have been universally seen as good, in Jesus' day. Those who meek, who are meek, are those who don't demand their rights be recognized by others. This, too, was not necessarily seen as good in Jesus' day. Meekness can stem from a corrupted understanding of oneself. In the first century, meekness may have been particularly viewed as a negative in their honor and shame culture. So while we might assume that meekness relates to being poor in spirit and both relate to humility, that may not be the case. There's no clear grouping or way to organize these traits, nor any pattern that I am aware of. In short, these are all people who are simply living their lives like anyone else. Jesus doesn't rule out anyone, rich or poor, powerful or weak, old or young, educated or ignorant, Jew or Gentile. Mourning is probably the great unifier. Almost everyone who ever lives will mourn at some point in their lives, which means Jesus offers comfort to everyone who will receive it. This is wonderful news. No one is outright excluded from the kingdom of God. If Jesus had only mentioned those who hunger for righteousness and the pure in heart, we might think that God waits for us to get our act together before he will work with us. This says just the opposite. Come as you are. If you are busy, come to the Lord. If you are stressed, come to the Lord. If you are tired, come to the Lord. It's pretty much what we say about communion. No fitness or church membership is required at the time of communicating other than a sense of our state, of our utter sinfulness and helplessness apart from Christ. That's why I think the poor in spirit comes first. 
These are the people who realize that they are utterly reliant on God. They know they can never measure up. We can never be good enough. Without grace, we are doomed. The remaining seven descriptors may be of people who are already poorer in spirit, or they may just be led in that direction. Without accepting our own poverty of spirit, the door to our heart is shut, and Jesus can't walk through. We do truly come as we are, but we do have to come. When it comes to the heart, Jesus won't be breaking and entering. You will notice that there is a shift at verse 11. Jesus breaks the pattern of blessed are the, and now shifts to blessed are you. I believe this is because he is explicitly addressing the disciples now, knowing that they will one day face great persecution. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. This one is also separated from all the others because the first and last groups Jesus mentioned both received the kingdom of heaven in verse 3 and again in verse 10. That makes the first eight a clear, distinct group with a sort of appendix tagged on the end. Jesus is telling the disciples that by enduring persecution for the sake of their faith in him, they are in the same category as the prophets. Remaining faithful through persecution puts one on a par with the spiritual greats like Elijah, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. All Jews learn the stories of these great men of faith passed down from generation to generation, spoken of in hushed tones of reverence. Their faithfulness was worth remembering, venerating, and emulating. They are part of the great cloud of witnesses from Hebrews 12, verse 1. So how did a group of nobodies, fishermen, a tax collector, a zealot, and others, come to be spiritual greats. How is that even possible? It's the grand story of redemption, played out in the lives of 12 ordinary men. Jesus called them out of their ordinary lives, and through spending time with him, they were transformed. The process that started with Jesus calling their name led to them receiving the Holy Spirit on Pentecost and facing all kinds of persecution and hardship in order to further the kingdom. As a result, the church has traditionally called them saints. But they are not the only saints. They didn't become saints on the day they finished running their race. They were saints from the day they answered the call of Jesus. That means we, too, are saints. If you are hearing my voice and have said yes to Jesus, then the title saint applies to you. Being a saint means being on the journey. It's not a term reserved for the super spiritual or for those now receiving their eternal reward. All of us, 
will be part of the great multitude which no man could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. When that day comes, you might be standing next to Joshua or Mary Magdalene or Thomas Aquinas or John Wesley, but I don't think you'll be in awe of them. I don't think you will want their autograph. I think they will be just as excited to be standing next to you as you them. All saints have a miraculous spiritual equality that is another grace of God. We will belong in the heavenly throne room as much as anyone else. There are two important things that I want you all to do as a result of your sainthood. First, be humble. As I said earlier, the disciples didn't get to where they were on their own. They were transformed by being in the presence of Jesus. That means Jesus comes to us as we are, just like he did the disciples, and offers to transform our lives as he did theirs by spending time with him. None of us become saints on our own. It is only through his presence that we are transformed. So we should be the most humble of people, overwhelmed that Jesus wants us as we are, whether we are meek or mourning or merciful. And yet he can see what we can become, bringing us on the journey of transformation. Second, be invested in the spiritual journey of your fellow saints. Sainthood is hard. There are lots of things on our path that can make us stumble. And if you want to reach the mountaintop, you have to go uphill. Encouraging others is inherent in being part of the great cloud of witnesses. What good are the witnesses if they don't encourage? So not only do we walk the spiritual journey with Jesus, but also with each other. Jesus reminds us, I came to you when you were hurting and tired and weak. I didn't care if you weren't beautiful or learned. I met you where you were, and I've never left your side. I know what lies ahead on this path. It won't be easy, but it will be worth it. The view from the top is unlike anything you've ever seen before. And by the way, the more you help others, the easier your own journey becomes. Now as we prepare to receive communion, we understand that this is the defining meal of the saints. We receive the elements of Christ's spiritual flesh and blood not only with all Christians everywhere, but also with all believers through time. Through this meal, we are united with the great cloud of witnesses that we celebrate on this All Saints Sunday. We are still on the journey of sainthood while theirs is done. This meal reminds us that Jesus comes to us as we are excluding no one, and offering the hope 
of radical transformation that our world yearns for. Jesus has removed the world's yoke of performance, instead offering us his very self, by which we too can belong in the heavenly throne room. Wherever you are on this journey, taking your first steps or seasoned traveler, Jesus invites you to his table, to the meal of the saints. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.